This is the Conduit Church Teaching Podcast. Thanks for joining us. It's our mission to be a conduit of Jesus to the community in front of us and the world around us, starting with the teaching of His Word. Enjoy the message. Uh, John chapter 15. And while you're turning to that, um, I want to share with you uh, an excerpt from a book. I just out of curiosity, how many of you have heard of Yomi Park? Okay, that's, that's actually more than I would have thought. Uh, I, I read her first book a few years ago called The Girl with Seven Names, and I, uh, I could not recommend it more. She escaped from North Korea as a young teenager, uh, and the reason it's called The Girl with Seven Names is because she had to change her name seven different times on her journey. So she ended up in China, she ended up in Thailand, in South Korea. It was a brutal journey to freedom for her. And it was, uh, I couldn't put the book down, it was riveting. So this is her follow-up book called While Time Remains. Part of her story is that she, through miraculous, divine, whatever you, you know, believe, like he, God moved doors for her, and she ultimately ends up at Columbia University in New York City. Uh, a lot of people don't know this, but Columbia University is actually older than our country. It was founded in 1754. Uh, the Latin like motto for this school is about into the light we see light. It's talking about the gospel. Like it's a Christian, it was born as a Christian university in 1754. So she comes to America after surviving being sex trafficked. She comes to America after surviving nearly being executed, being imprisoned, being physically abused, emotionally abused. After she makes it to America, this land of promise, and she gets into Columbia University. So she is ecstatic because she's finally going to be in a place where she can learn to think, learn to think critically. And one of the things that she talks about is that here's how uncritical they were taught to think in North Korea. They were taught that the uh, American, and let's say there's children, expletives, uh, were the problem for all of North Korea's problems. And that they're all suffering together. And that part of, and this is what they're taught in their schools, this is what they're taught by their parents and, uh, and by their dear leader. And one of the things that she said it took, I, she, I was long gone from North Korea when I finally realized, because part of what they would tell us is that even our dear leader is starving to death. And at one point she says, I'm watching the news and I'm realizing, wait, he's fat. He's not starving to death. But in a world that lives by lies, it literally didn't even enter her mind that he wasn't starving with them because they were in a world where they were told what to think, how to think it. They were told, in fact, one of the things they were told was that their dear leader discovered something that nobody in history had ever discovered before, which is that one plus one does not equal two. This is in their school curriculum. One plus one equals one. Because one raindrop and one raindrop, or I believe he says teardrops, two, or drops of water come together. They don't make two drops of water, they make one. And the idea being that we all come together and we lose our identity and our, we make one, which is the dear leader. That's what they were taught from. In other words, they were taught a lie as if it were true. So now, fast forward, she is in one of our premier educational institutions in America. 
And on her first day of class is being taught all kinds of crazy things. In fact, one of the things she talks about is uh, one of the professors asked, because have you ever heard of Jane Austen? Have you ever read Jane Austen books? Anybody read Jane Austen books? Right? Fans of Jane Austen. Okay. Well, let me tell you what the professor at Columbia University would say. You are a misogynist because Jane Austen books were a part of the American misogyny that was about oppression of women by white men. That was day one of class for her at Columbia University. And she's like, well, maybe I'm just misunderstanding. You know, so she goes and asks the professor later. The professor tells her, no, you're just being naive. You don't understand. You've been brainwashed, which for her was a word that she did not want. She was like, that's all we've ever been told is we're brainwashed. And now she's in a school that is brainwashing their students. So here's what she talks about. She says, um, I think this is chapter four. Uh, it's talking about feelings, don't care about your facts. I started to despair that my new institutional home would not be a vehicle to search for truth, but the opposite, a cult. That word may sound like an exaggeration, but consider on the first day of most courses, professors ask us to introduce ourselves by stating not only our names and where we came from, but our pronouns. I knew what a pronoun was grammatically, but couldn't for the life of me figure out what it meant that each of us possessed a preferred one. In the English classes I had taken in South Korea, the list of personal pronouns, and then you're going to get a little bit of an English lesson on Father's Day, you're welcome, included the subjective I, you, he, she, it, we, they, the objective counterparts, me, you, him, her, it, us, and them, the possessive ones, on and on. Personal pronouns were used in statements and commands, but not in questions. Interrogative pronouns like whom, who, and what were used for that purpose. These lessons were fresh in my memory, and I could rattle them off. Okay, so she has been educated in South Korea. She's now in, in Columbia University, and this is what it goes on to say. But my South Korean tutors were apparently quite backward, employing English grammatical rules that merely existed from about 1450 to 2014. They had not gotten the memo. There are, in fact, 78 gender pronouns. Some, like Z-I-Z, sounded to me like Americans doing bad impressions of Germans. An odd preference. And others, like Ver-V's, were reminiscent of tongue twisters in Latin class. My personal favorites were Z, Zem, and Zer, which looked and sounded more like they came from Mendeleev's periodic table of elements. Most <laughs> bore no resemblance to anything in the rest of the English language. I was already struggling, listen to this, and think about how hard this would be. Of everything she's escaped, she's trying to learn English, one of the hardest languages on the planet, right? And she's saying that I, I was already struggling to master my new language, and I felt really insecure about it, and now I ran the risk of offending my peers by misstating their pronouns, no matter how hard I tried to remember them as if these dynamics weren't confusing enough, these pronouns could not even be guessed at simply by observing the phenotypic appearance of my classmates. She goes on to tell a story of a, a guy in her class that was this really giant dude. He actually pictured CJ in this mantle picture for, for this part, but not for the next part, which was that she misdiagnosed, uh, what is it? not misdiagnosed, mispronounced, pronounced him, pronounced him. Anyway, she missed whatever it is. And he got, he was devastated, like sobbing and crying. And she's like, and I could see the hurt and the fear in his eyes because I called him a he instead of a they. And it was like this shocking world. And so she goes on to write in the next chapter that she was, uh, 
So the professor now is telling her that you're naive. You don't know what's going on in this world and in America and how genders are here. You just don't understand the nuances. And she says to that, she was actually right. In a way, up until that point, I had only used my eyes and common sense to conclude that by and large, men and women are equal but dissimilar. That men were better at carrying heavy things. That's why we have a son. Better at spending time alone. My wife can confirm that. More interested in ideas that women were better at multitasking, better at working in teams, more interested in people. Of course, many exceptions exist, but studies generally show, and this is a fact, that women are in fact better than men by and large at verbal fluency, perceptual speed, accuracy. Again, my wife can confirm that. I am not good at accuracy and fine motor skills, while men outperform women in spatial awareness, working memory, and mathematical skills. While I had not learned, what I had not learned was that the, quote, nuances and subtleties of gender interactions in a new culture in academia. There's a new culture in our world, it's called academia, and she had not figured that out yet. These must, in fact, be learned because none of them are intuitive or obvious. The professor asked me where I learned that I couldn't carry as many bricks as a man. I said I weighed 80 pounds, which I did, and left it at that. (laughs) That's in just one of our cultural institutions of learning right now. And I promise you that this is happening in universities all over America, and especially, and not limited to, Nashville, Tennessee. And my question for us is, as followers of Jesus, how do we live in a world where we're being asked to believe lies that are true? What is the call of Jesus on our lives? How do we live You know, in the words of Francis Schaeffer's 1990 book, how should we then live? And the good news is John 15 gives us a clue in that, in that we're not going to have to do that alone. Jesus, if you remember last week, he is heading to the cross. By now, they're walking to the Garden of Gethsemane. And along the way, he's talking to them and he's saying, I'm about to leave. It's going to be sad, you're going to, but you're going to be better because of it. I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to send you a, a, a comforter, an advocate, the Holy Spirit. You're not going to be alone. And he says here at the very, we'll just read verses 26 and then we'll go back and cover the rest of it as the message goes on. But when the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, verse 26, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. He's using language that is very much legal in nature. Testify, advocate, which is a Greek word that has a lot of implications we'll get to in a little bit, but one of them is which is a lawyer in it. You're going to have to testify. You're going to have to tell the truth. I'm going to put a lawyer in the room with you. And how do we... How do you and I live in a world like this in this simple, I mean, Alexander Solzhenitsyn in his uh, 1974 book, he defined it this way, getting out of Eastern Bloc Europe, out of coming out of the uh, communism that had taken over Eastern Bloc Europe. He said it wasn't so much that we were told to lie, it was we had to live as if the lie was true. And so his book, his 
statement that Rod Dreher built on later was very simple, which is we cannot live by lies. To live not by lies is the greatest act of revolution in a world built on lies. And we have an advocate. We have the Holy Spirit to guide us, to empower us, to live not as if lies are true in our culture. By the way, not new in our culture, not new in history. We'll talk about that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we approach your word this morning, I pray that you would make these truths alive in us, that you would empower us, that you would give us wisdom on how to how to navigate these waters as fathers, as mothers, as parents, as, as kids in, in, in universities and heading into the military. Like, like the, God, would you empower us to learn to speak up, to, to learn how to speak but, and what to speak and when to speak it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You're not alone. And the way that this unfolds in John chapter 15 is that the way that we do this, the, the path that we're on is starting with the fact that, hey, you're chosen for this battle. You're chosen to be in this. And not only are you chosen, you're not alone. You're in good company. And that all along the way that we are covered. And that's what I want to share with you this morning. The idea that you're chosen, if the world hates you, keep in mind, it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world but I've chosen you out of the world. And that is why, listen, I've chosen you out of the world and that is why the world hates you. I don't think they do this anymore, but when I was a kid, there was this thing, this public humiliation that we called choosing teams. They would line us up against the wall and they would, do they do this now? Uh, surely not because of the fragility, but you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> Let me tell you what, that would cure every snowflake on the planet. Just put them in one dodgeball game where they got to pick teams. <laughs> I was always second to last. Last was Lori Pearson. I know, right? But she had germs. So um, that's what they said. I didn't say that. That's what they said. I do want to call her, though, because I was second to last, because I'll, I'll take Tyler. At least he's funny. But I want to call Lori and say, hey, did you make it too? Because I made it. Like, we made it out of there. Tell those guys to just kiss off, man. All the <laughs> chosen first people. Uh, <laughs> but chosen for a team. We were chosen to participate by this team or the other team. Now, here's the thing. Uh, there's two teams in this world right now. Matthew tells us, Jesus, right? You're either with me or you're against me. There are no three teams. There's not 16 teams. There's a surely not 78 teams. You're either with me or you're against me. And for those of us who have called upon the name of the Lord, we were chosen. And the beautiful thing about the Holy Spirit is none of us were chosen last. That's why the, the last shall be first. It's why, you know, you talk about the guy that came at the very last, he still gets the same reward as the guy that was there at the very beginning because in the world where there is no time, we're all chosen first. It's why Jesus said the Holy Spirit, it's better that I go because the Holy Spirit's here. That means I don't have to get in line, punch through a wall, dig through a ceiling. I have first place in line because the Holy Spirit is inside of me, on top of me, all around me. All of us are first in this. But we were chosen. Now chosen for what? 
Whether you like it or not, whether you know it or not, I'm sorry if this is brand new information to you. <laughs> there is a war in this world. Not, not the wars that we see about on CNN. Well, I mean, nobody's watching CNN, so. Um, I mean, they're really not. I mean, 300,000 people, I mean. There's a war going on. It started in Genesis chapter 2. Let me rephrase that. It started before that. It started in heaven. Ezekiel 38, Isaiah 54 speaks of Satan declaring war on God. I want to be equal, equality with God. So he declares war. He's thrown to earth is what the Bible tells us. Jesus says, I beheld him as lightning falling from earth. And in that moment, the enemy set about to destroy God's good creation and God's goodness. And then in the garden, as people were choosing teams, Adam and Eve chose a team. And that garden, when they said, God, I appreciate your enthusiasm. And even then, thousands of years ago, the lie was still the same. Did God really say? God's holding out on you. You were created this way. God's holding out. Why would this happen if God, God can't possibly love you? If you're created this way, he wouldn't have done that. Thousand, that's not a brand new argument. That was thousands of years ago. And in that battle, it began in the garden where man, Romans 5 tells us, became an enemy of God because we were on the wrong dodgeball team. Now, by Genesis 6, it says that the sons of God looked and saw that the daughters of men were fine, and they are. And it says that they had children with the daughters of men, and it was the days of the Nephilim. And in that part of the war, invading and literally trying to destroy the DNA of humanity, when you see what God did in the flood, it wasn't just about Genesis 1, 2, and 3. It was about Genesis 6 as well, declaring war. And so the, the Nephilim, the, the sons of God, all that God, that, that war started. Then in Deuteronomy 32, it speaks about those principalities and those powers who are now in charge of this nation or that territory. or that. And that's what Ephesians tells us. There are principalities and powers. Uh, Paul says that there's the prince of the power of the air. That is Satan. There is a war that is the war behind all wars that is not in our world, but in the spiritual world, and it affects the rest of us. So when it says that they will hate you because they hated me, it's because there is an principalities, powers, there is a spiritual dark forces that want to destroy God and everything that is good. And with you follow Jesus, when you say, I'm believing on Jesus, I'm following him, you are choosing a side and it is not the side of the world. And they hate you for that. The hatred you see on display in anti-Semitism, that did not start in Nazi Germany. It started in Genesis 3 when God looked at the enemy and said, her seed will crush your head. Speaking of a, a birth one day that would come from a, a virgin because a female doesn't have a seed Right? It's the first mention of the gospel. And when you look throughout the Old Testament, over and over and over again, the people of Israel, there's been no nation 
It is unmatched of a group of people that have been hated, that have been murdered, that have been marginalized throughout thousands of years of human history. Because if her seed, right, her bloodline could crush his head, wiping out the Jewish people would wipe out God's goodness and God's plan for humanity. It wasn't born in Hitler's wolf lair. It was born in the pit of hell. And so now Jesus is resurrected. Anti-Semitism has continued. You understand, like if I go to Israel, let me rephrase that. When I go to Israel, I don't put a, they don't put a stamp in your passport anymore in Israel. They give you a sticker like you're at Kroger. Do they still give out stickers at Kroger? Little smiley faces? Okay, well, this doesn't have a smiley face, but they give you a sticker. And the reason is, is there are dozens and dozens of countries that you cannot enter if you have an Israeli passport stamp on your passport. Because anti-Semitism continues, because Jesus is returning to a literal Jerusalem, a literal Israel, a literal temple, and Satan knows if I can wipe out these people, then God will break his promise and we, and we destroy all of God's good creation. That said, not only is anti-Semitism hated, Christianity is hated. Because Satan doesn't know the plans. He doesn't know exactly how it's going to unfold. I mean, look, that's why there's so much debate about eschatology. You think a good general is going to give his whole plan away to the enemy? No. So there's all kinds of different theories. And I, but, I mean, trust me, I love having conversations about them. Darren Foster and I have had some great conversations about him. But he's not going to give his whole plan away to the enemy. Right? So instead, he, he gives us the plan, which is go into all this world and make disciples of all men. Right? That's our mission. And then Jesus takes care of the rest. But if he can wipe out Christians, take us out, he takes out God's good plan. We get to live by truth. And truth says that there's goodness in this world, that there's generosity in this world. There are those right now that would call what I'm about to say Christian nationalism. And I don't have enough tweets, <laughs> enough energy to tweet why that's nonsense. But my question is, as a follower of Jesus, you have somebody making decisions in our community. Would you rather have a follower of Jesus making those decisions? Or would you rather have somebody that is not? And I think that's a really simple answer. That's not Christian nationalism. That's called common sense. You're going to be hated for it. You're not going to be celebrated for it. And the sooner we disabuse ourselves of the notion that we're going to be welcomed as liberators and instead hated as invaders and conquerors, the better our lives are going to be. The easier they're going to be. Parenthetically, we're accused a lot as far as many people in our society that say that as Jesus people, we are white colonialists with our Christianity going to Africa. And the irony is delicious because Christianity was in Africa long before it was in America. Go to Ethiopia and tell them that we colonialize them with Christianity and they'll laugh at you. In fact, they say they have the Ark of the Covenant there. That's a different sermon. <laughs> But they do, they really say that. They just won't let you go in and look at it. 
we have an opportunity, not only an opportunity, a moral obligation. We have the absolute pleasure, privilege, and honor of joining Jesus in his mission. It's better that I go away. You're going to have to testify about me now. And you know what? They're not going to be that excited about it. And the reason they're not that excited about it is you have been chosen out of this world. And in a world that says one plus one equals one, the truth is a direct threat to the power structures. And I would rather die for the truth than live for a lie. And I know I'm in a room full of people that feel exactly the same. Amen. You are chosen. And you've been chosen for a team. Matthew tells us, Jesus, you're either with us or you're against us. And when you go home and read this, Matthew 12, verses 30 through 7, cross-reference this with John chapter 15 and just see it's the same kind of stuff that the, the lies that are trying to be made true and you're going to have to choose between us. Uh, I tell you, everyone's going to have to give account for the day of judgment. Your words, by, listen, verse 37, by your words you will be acquitted and by your words you will be condemned. Brothers and sisters, by your words you will be acquitted and by your words you will be condemned. Now that said, there's many, I, I wouldn't say in this room, because I love, I love I, the church I serve, you all are a scrappy, nimble, not screwing around bunch of people, okay? So this is other people. But being silent is not an option, not in the kingdom of God. And we will be acquitted by our words or we will be condemned by them. And the question is, Am I more afraid of being condemned by media? Am I more condemned being condemned by culture than I am of being condemned by God? And the answer for me is very simple. I'm way more afraid of God than I am of this culture. You are chosen and you are not alone. You are in good company because they treated him this way. They're going to treat you that way. If I had not come, verse 22, and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. I don't know if you've noticed, even in our world right now, but in our culture, it's no longer born this way, it's choose whatever way. And the anger is, I mean, literally in the last three decades, the numbers that have quote-unquote identified in an LGBT world has doubled with every generation. But that's only in America, not the rest of the world. Is it possible? Just floating it out there. Is it possible that it's culture that is discipling our children and not, not the word of God, not truth? But the anger comes that now your truth, not my truth, your truth, his truth, is the only truth that we can live by. And I know that there are people who would say, Darren, this is political. Why are you being political? Can, can I just say something? I mean, I can't get fired. I technically, I don't know, it's Father's Day. You can't fire me on Father's Day. <laughs> You're like, try me. Uh, <laughs> who gets to decide that abortion is political? Who decided that? Did culture? Because I say that's a human rights issue. Who gets to decide that it's political? Who gets to decide marriage is a political thing? Just because someone said it was political doesn't mean it is. This is a human rights issue. To tell a parent in California, there's a bill going through right now, I don't know if it's going to pass or not, that's saying that if your child decides that they are 
of the opposite sex and you don't quote unquote affirm it, that is considered child abuse. That is a bill in California right now that is attempting to get through their laws. And we know that there are some politicians there that if they had their way, that that would pass. Is that a political issue or is that a human rights issue? I say it's human rights. So maybe, or maybe not, someone like me gets to decide, talk about politics, but I'll tell you what I do get to talk about, and that's morality. Well, like, Jesus has the corner on the market on morality, so we don't get to be, we don't have to be, we don't need to be quiet about that. We get to talk as loudly and as lovingly as we can to fight and to protect children. That's an easy one. That's a layup. That's a bump set spike. It's not even a hard one, right? But point being that this is not a political sermon. This is a, this is a morality sermon. This is a Jesus sermon. Someone wants to call that political, let them call it political, but they're wrong. This is a Jesus issue. This is a humanity issue. And our brothers and sisters in Africa, in Honduras, in Asia, this is why you can't let culture lead you. Our culture says the boy can be a girl. They're going, wait, what? That's crazy. A man can't have a baby. My Ugandan friends, how did that even come into your minds? How does that even happen? <laughs> he got, <laughs> sorry, I have to be careful. He said a word. Anyway. Um, but on the other hand, here's why culture can't lead. Because in some of these countries, in Uganda right now, their law says that uh, if you are uh, uh, attracted in the opposite sex, that there's a, the, the, it could be the death penalty. Okay, that's not a biblical thing either. That's not a, a Christian thing. In Pakistan, slavery, the reason we can set them free in that country is because it's legal to go into slavery and it's legal to release them from it because their culture says that it's legal. So whose culture gets to decide? When you accuse me of white colonialism, and now you're going into Uganda and saying, now you have to give them 78 pronouns, that's white colonialism. Because it's not Africans saying that, it's white nationalists, progressive nationalists saying it. So my, oh geez, I got four minutes. Um, look. Am I, do I sound grumpy, Shannon? A little bit? If that ball comes over the fence one more time, it's mine. <laughs> Got my tidy whiteies on, like I'm ready to just be an old man and just be grumpy. How did that even happen? <sighs> I'm about to spend the summer in Africa. I could give zero craps because they need to come here as missionaries. They're over there going, you guys are, I don't, because all they see from us, of the 300,000 people watching CNN, a bunch of them are watching them in airports in Africa, because apparently that's one of the only places. And they're looking at that going, they think our entire nation is this way, because that's what they see in things like CNN and MSNBC, which are in their airports. They're looking at us going, we are praying for you. And you know why they're praying for us? Because if our, our nation has historically and is currently investing more in feeding the poor, in setting slaves free, in human rights, helping with food, and our country is helping more countries in the world than all the other countries combined. And the American church specifically continues to, by orders of magnitude, invest in and help children, help women rescuing them out of sex trafficking. We are, the, look, the stakes are so high here. 
Because what we do in our country matters in that country. I remember them telling us back in the COVID days going, Darren, I don't know if you, like, we don't, they don't. I don't know what a Republican or a Democrat, I all I know is when you guys make decisions over there, they directly affect us here, and we really wish you would get your crap together. You have shut our schools down for two years in Uganda. We just wish that you guys would think before you speak. And I'm saying, I look, I don't know, maybe even in this room, there are those of you that God is tapping on the door of your heart to, maybe I should be on city council. Maybe I should be on the school board. Maybe I should be, not as a, a Christian nationalist, but as a follower of Jesus saying, to love your neighbor as yourself, to, to live selflessly, to live generously, to humble yourselves, not in pride, but in humility, that maybe you should be someone who gets to step into those worlds now and, and speak truth in love into that world. I don't know, maybe someone in here, the Lord is not calling you to be a missionary in Africa, but to be a missionary in city hall, to be a missionary in the city council. You're not going to be welcomed as a freedom guy. You're going to be hated, but you are not alone because you are chosen by God, and there are thousands of you around. I love this. One of the most dangerous things we can do is cop an Elijah complex. Do you know what I'm talking about? There's nobody holy but me. Jezebel's trying to kill me. I'm going to go hide in the caves and eat birds and take a nap, and God at some point is like, all right, dude, you got to suck it up. You got your nap. You got your lunch. And by the way, there are 7,000 or 10,000 others that haven't bowed, so get up and get back into town and get to work. Gang, you're looking at a room right now of which probably the vast majority have not bowed. You're not alone. And I'm here to tell you that there are hundreds of thousands, maybe millions, probably millions around this country that are just like you and just like me who want to follow Jesus. You're not alone. Don't cop an Elijah complex. Don't get yourself in a position where you're even enjoying the persecution. Enjoying it because you're like, you know, it makes you feel better. We, we live in one of the only cultures I'm aware of that actually celebrates oppressed people. So if you can find a way to make yourself oppressed, you actually up your power, not lower it. Don't buy into that. That's the plan of the enemy. Jesus didn't embrace his oppression. Jesus didn't embrace his persecution. And he also didn't avoid it. Let's not avoid it. Let's not embrace it. Because not only are we in good company, but we are covered by the Holy Spirit. We are covered by Jesus himself. He uses a word here called advocate is what it's translated. Some of yours probably says comforter. Some of yours translations probably says helper. That was Holy Spirit. But John uses a word called paraclete to define that word. When he's going to talk about the Holy Spirit, John often took words from the Greek language that they would have understood in the day-to-day lives and then used that to describe an idea that God was giving to them. Chapter one, logos. That is not a Jesus word. That was a Greek word that John chose to say, Jesus is the logos. The entire meaning of the entire universe the logos, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The logos became flesh. That was a Greek word, not a God word. Paraclete was not a God word. It was a Greek word that spoke of being a lawyer, an advocate. I don't know if any of you have ever been deposed before. Anybody? Come on. It's a blast, isn't it, Jamie? Right? Because you think, I could kick this guy's butt. All we got to do is take this outside, this little sawed-off attorney and his little big mouth trying to make me mad. But no, I got to sit here and take that in my suit and tie. 
Sorry, I'm a little sensitive. <laughs> but you know what helped me through deposition in my life? Was an attorney putting his hand on my arm going, hey, dude, you got to calm down. <laughs> hey, dude, listen to me. Hey, dude, it's going to be okay. And sometimes he didn't say a word. He would just put his hand on my knee going, because I'm about ready to open my big mouth and say something real dumb. That's the word that Jesus is using here, John is using in reference to the Holy Spirit, is an advocate, an attorney, someone to put his hand on your knee to go, you gotta learn from the great philosopher Kenny Rogers. You gotta know when to hold him. You gotta know when to fold him. You gotta know when to walk away. You gotta know when to run. The job of the Holy Spirit in our lives is an advocate, is Kenny Rogers. He is our consultant that speaks into our lives. You're not alone. He is testifying on behalf of Jesus because we are going to have to testify. The power of the Holy Spirit is that when I'm speaking, I am testifying what he has testified to me about Jesus. When I read this word, if I'm just doing it like I'm reading Ayn Rand, right? Or if I'm reading like a, just some ancient literature, that's not what this is. And anybody, if you've ever followed Jesus for any length of time and you've ever just prayed, Holy Spirit, as I read this this morning, speak to me. This is a different communication. I've been following Jesus a long time. I've been a Bible nerd for longer than I care to admit. And every time I read the Bible that way, something jumps out that I've never seen before because the Holy Spirit is alive and well. And I'm going to tell you one of those things, and then we're going to be done. I was reading yesterday, and it was like, I just felt like a spirit prompting me going, hey, paraclete, that's a word from the Greek language. I wonder what the Greek people did when they translated the Old Testament, Hebrew, into Greek. Did they ever use the word paraclete? Turns out they did. In Genesis chapter 42, when Joseph was seeing his brothers for the first time in decades. They were coming looking for help. They were desperate. Joseph, a picture of Jesus, one of the most perfect pictures of Jesus in the entire Old Testament is Joseph. If you're looking for a summer Bible study, look no further than that. It's beautiful. But Joseph, even though he spoke their language, used an interpreter to speak to them. The brothers are over here. Jesus is over here. Joseph, Jesus, and in between them is a, and the Hebrew word is melitz, M-E-L-I-T-Z, probably pronouncing that wrong, but that word was translated in the Septuagint in the Greek as paraclete. But you know what a paraclete was translated from? An interpreter. The interpreter of Genesis 42 that explained to these guys what this guy was thinking, that's the word paraclete, that's the word that John used, the Jesus Followers who had a history in Hebrew Bible at all, who'd followed the, the Torah, would have known that word. Oh, that's the word for an interpreter. It's used again in Job chapter 16, when Job refers to this messenger. So uh, right here, you've got this, this mediator, this guy, and we're, by the way, we're, we're going to see, like that's one of the words used to describe the Holy Spirit. And in Job chapter 16, the, he refers to them as this, uh, this messenger, this, this uh, person that would speak on behalf of God to Job. They use the word paraclete for that. This idea then again is in Isaiah 42, when he speaks of comfort, 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 and it's the word malitz, 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 but in the Greek it is right? It's the Greek word, paraclete, paraclete, paraclete. So when you see comforter, 
advocate, helper. Those translators didn't just pull that out of their neck. Those are words that they knew had been used to be translated from the Hebrew into Greek that would be a word that we could use. So the fact is, if you get a French Bible, a Spanish Bible, an Arabic Bible, they don't even bother trying to translate it. They just actually use the word paraclete because there is no other word that fully grasp that fully encapsulates what paraclete means in English or Arabic or French or Spanish. It means so many things. So if you walk away here today going, you know, he's a comforter, he's a helper, he's an advocate, a lawyer, the answer to all of those things is yes. And he is a translator for us. As we now speak Jesus's words to others, it is not our job for them to hear it. That's the Holy Spirit's job. He translates for us. Pray that we would communicate it as clearly as possible, that we would communicate it in love. And at the end of the day, I'm not a salesman trying to close a deal. I am a farmer planting a seed. I am communicating something, and it is now the Holy Spirit's job to communicate it, to translate it to them, and it is their job to decide whether it's yes or no. It is not my job to make them say yes or no. If you think it is your job to win your child to Christ, if it is your job to win your neighbor to Christ, disabuse yourself of that notion. Take that pressure off of you. It's your job to plant the seeds. It's the farmer's job to grow the harvest. You're not a salesman trying to close a deal overcome the obstacles, right? Here's the objections and here's, you know, just speak the truth and let the Holy Spirit translate for you. Hey, Mo, are we in the yellow zone? Good. Stand to your feet. I got to get you out of here. Do you know that here's a little secret. We have green, yellow, and red. Red is Mo and Zach going. Oh, <laughs> uh-huh. actually Zach paces. He doesn't do that. Mo does this. Zach does this. That's how I know. (laughs) And it's Father's Day. So God bless you guys. Father, be with them in Jesus' name. Amen. Go.